Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring. Welcome everyone to uh, this episode of There's No Business Like. I am Kevin Maynard from Quad City Arts and I'm joined here with Josh. What's up? Josh Benson from Marion, Illinois in the Marion Cultural and Civic Center. Brian. Brian Zelmer from KU Presents. Katie. Hey, hey, hey. It's Katie Miller with the Midland Center for the Arts in Midland, Michigan. And Danielle. Hi, it's Danielle Van Hook from the Alton and McLean, Virginia. So we have another special interview today uh, that we'll all get to hear. Uh, we teased it last week talking about Michael Mushala, uh, who most of us met through Christine and really got to know while we were at that summit. Uh, so one of the things he talks about in the interview that we experienced is, you know, sort of just asking why which is what led to this right here. Well, yeah, and the why, especially coming from Michael, is why we're all here during the summit asking, you know, what were things that we did during the pandemic that we aren't doing anymore and why? And if we enjoyed them, why aren't we doing them? Why not? And there were multiple projects that, that the team had during the pandemic that were podcast-like, but not necessarily a strict podcast, which led to the five of us getting together as your five quad hosts <laughs> for this podcast. I really appreciated Michael's asking of why. It was such a challenging moment personally for me. And I think you hear a little bit in conversation that we're going to hear in a moment um, why his thought process is that way. And it just really fits Michael's personality. But I'm grateful to him for pushing me personally by asking why. I don't think we ask why enough in our line of work. So I do appreciate that very much about that time and um, just about Michael in general. So I agree that I appreciated that he did that, but I will say I found it quite frustrating. <laughs> and I do think that that's part of the point, right? Because sometimes you can say, okay, I see this thing and I'm like, you know what? I know why it's that way, or this is how I'm assessing it. And when someone just comes to you and is like, whoa, but why though? And you actually then have to think about it a little bit deeper. It definitely caused me to like have that frustration and to kind of like simmer in it for a little bit, but then realize that it was very wise. And it's very clarifying. Yeah. Like yes. Once you, once you, because all of us have our opinions about whatever, but even if they're not being challenged, but just questioned with a simple, but why? And why is it that way? Why, why can your organization not do that? Or why is your organization doing that? Walking through that question gives you a better and deeper understanding and clarification of your own organization. And as you guys have alluded to, why was not the lead off question. It would start out with some other question. And I, the challenge for me, I didn't even realize until he asked why that I just kind of spewed out an answer, like a, an answer that I already had in my pocket that I've always answered that type of question with. And then when he said why, it made me think about, yeah, why am I answering it this way? And then as I think more deeply, I get challenged. I started challenging myself. And so it, I really appreciated Michael bringing that why to us because it, it opened up my whole world in every decision that I'm making since then. Yeah, I think it definitely led to growth with all of us um, and obviously led us to right here. And that brings us to our interview with Michael. Uh, Brian, thank you for joining me on this as well. So with that, let's jump into the interview with Michael Mushala. Michael Mushala, and I have a little company called Double M Arts and Events, and uh, I've had that since January of 1999. I was at CAMI before that from September 17th, 1981, till the end of 98, and uh, that was that was my education. How I learned everything I 
thought I needed to know about our business. Excellent. So, what? How did you get to Cami? Like, what led you to to that position there? I was a graduate student at NYU, and I was taking a class in piano forehands. And uh, the woman, the doctoral candidate that uh, I was assigned to work with, Deirdre O'Donoghue, got a telephone call in her studio when we we were practicing, and uh, it was a gentleman by the name of Greg Gleisner who was working at Cami at the time, and he said, hey, our program note annotator quit today. Do you know anybody who could do that? And she said, yeah, he's sitting next to me. <laughs> and I went in and had an interview the next day with a, a great manager by the name of Sam Niefeld, and uh, he offered me a position, which had the starting salary of $9,000 a year. And I said, well, I'll take it, provided that I can continue my job as a church organist. So I, I made a deal. I would do the work. I'd put in the hours. But I had to be able to have flexible hours because you never know when someone's going to die and you have to play the funeral. I kept that up for quite a while while I was, you know, my first five years or so at Cami. Yeah, I started in the program department writing program notes. And then I was, I was uh, asked to go to the conductor's division as uh, an associate. What, what does that mean? You know, I had, I was supposed to take dictation. I don't know how to take dictation. <laughs> I was supposed to type. I wasn't a typist. You know, this is, this is back in the, in the dark ages. This was carbon paper, you know, putting stamps on envelopes and sending telexes, that kind of stuff. Can we circle back? Can you explain what, what program notes are, like doing the program notes? Sure. For many performing arts organizations, if somebody goes to a show, you get a playbill or some other kind of booklet that tells you what the program is that you're going to see. And somebody has to write the information about those pieces. So Cami had a, a vast collection of notes that had been accumulated over the years. But for special concerts, you would go to the Library for the Performing Arts up at Lincoln Center and do the research and try to come up with some original way to talk about these pieces. That's what I did as far as writing program notes. And I was, I was really lucky because I got to uh, write notes for the incredible pianist Emil Gallels and uh, when Horowitz returned to the stage at Carnegie Hall. I was, you know, I was involved with that. So 1999, you start your agency. Um, what, what led you to make that decision to, to go out on your own and start that? I was given the opportunity to leave. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd been there a long time and, um, you know, I'd, I'd, from program notes to uh, conductor's division, I became a sales rep at Cami. Uh, while I was a sales rep, I was invited to be a member of the board of directors. Uh, I was in my mid-20s at that point. Wow. Was that pretty young for a board of director back then for that company? It was. Yeah, I it thought was. so. And I stayed on the board until I left. And then I eventually was uh, given an opportunity to go into a management division with David Foster, who eventually left and went and was the head of ICM. And I stayed there, you know, until it was time to go. People that don't know these names that you're mentioning, these are all very large agencies. Yeah. So then you, you started you started your agency. Um, and so can you talk about what, what that process was like? I mean, specifically, you know, how does one decide that, that that's what they're going to do? And, and what's the starting point? Meaning, you know, obviously you have to have somebody to represent. Um, so what does that look like? Or what did that look like for you? In this well, point? what it looked like for me um, the, the reason I'm in business today is because in 1994, I was introduced to an artist uh, by the name of Mark Morris. And I 
was representing the Handel and Haydn Society Orchestra and Chorus from Boston, America's oldest continuously performing ensemble as far as an orchestra. And Christopher Hogwood was the music director. And I, I remember talking to him at, a, at an event. I said, Christopher, what's the one thing you want to do? And everybody says, can't be done. He said, I want to do Gluck's Orfeo, and I want Mark Morris to direct it. And I said, fantastic, who's Mark Morris? <laughs> I had no idea at all about who, who he was, but here I am still representing Mark Morris. When I left Cami, Mark and his team, Nancy Yumanoff, who's his executive director, they said to me that they would stay with me. And Columbia had a non-compete clause, so if you left, you weren't allowed to take artists with you. But Mark had created his own document to have Columbia sign it as you know his representation, and he put in a key man clause, and I was the key man. And it just said, if I wasn't at Columbia, they weren't at Columbia. So then Ronald, tried, Ronald Wilford, who was the president, tried to, uh, through his attorneys, get me not to be able to work in the industry. The leverage that I had was that at the time, Cami had stock, and it was, uh, it was closely held. It was not a publicly traded stock, but I owned stock in the company. Most people who owned the stock at the time, not to get into too much into the weeds, you didn't actually pay for it. They gave you a loan with the bank, with their bank, and you just paid the interest on the loan. And then when you left the company, you sold the, the stock back to the company, and you, you, know, you were done and you closed out the loan. On the very last business day of 1998, when I knew I, I was out, I went to the bank and paid off my loan. And I used that with my attorney as leverage so that when they wanted their stock back, we said, you know, provided that I can work. And so that's how, it, that's how I got there. And that's how, because Mark Morris was able to come with me, that's how come I'm in business today. What gave you the wherewithal to even know to do that? I mean, did someone give you advice on that, or is that just something that you... I knew it was a sticking point for the company, and I had discussed it with my attorney. One of the things that I enjoy about you, Michael, is is your acquisition of artists, of, of the way you choose how to work with, with artists. In the fact, and what I mean is that you are very, you're particular about who you're willing to work with, who you want to work with. Um, you know, some agents have, you know, uh, a very like deep roster and, you know, that's sort of how, how they do that. What determined that style of, of uh, managing an, an agency for you? I'm only interested in art that makes me feel like getting it out in the world is urgent. So when I meet an artist like Mark Morris, where the genius of his creativity is so obvious, and you know that you could sit there and watch that same show a hundred times and not get any sense of tiredness, but in fact, you would just probably see something new every time. That's the kind of sense of aesthetics and genius that draws me to the, what we do. You know, I think our job is to find the best work in the world and then help other people in the field find their way to putting that work on their stages. I do have a very small roster, but you use the term deep. And I would say that I have deeper relationships with the artist than it, rather than I have a great many artists that I represent. I serve not only as an agent, which is what a lot of the people in our industry do. I am I'm a creative producer. 
I help raise the funds to make the shows happen. I'm a manager, and by that I mean I'm, I'm giving very specific criticism and career you know, advice. And if I didn't have that relationship with an artist, I couldn't be working with them. That's just how I like to, you know, it's how I spend my days. <laughs> with that, I mean, how do you find these artists? I go to see a lot of work. You know, over the years, I've seen thousands and thousands of artists, um, not because I'm looking for people. I'm, I'm just curious. You know, I love great art. There are things that I, I absolutely adore, classical music. And when I was at Cami, I was deeply involved with it. I don't do any classical music at this point, you know, other than we use classical music with the Mark Morris dance group sometimes. But, you know, it's what I listen to, you know, when I'm, when I'm on my own, when I'm in the car or if I'm, you know, walking in the mornings, I'm listening to classical music. When you're with an an artist for so long like you are and there's going to be natural times where artists just kind of not lose their creativity but you know there's there's drought sometimes and then there's like springs where they're just flowing and, and have to get it out and somebody like mark morris you, you mentioned uh, your artist he's been constantly creating new things all these years not just being a legacy artist and, and relying on because there's those programs out there too in the industry where they just bring back the the popular things that they did at one time I'm just curious, in your role as the producer, as the um, manager, what is your role to help that artist continue to, to be inspired and creative? Or, or is it more you let them do it, and then when that spark hits them, you find a way to, to help make that happen? I think it's more that, Brian. My job is I'm not there to influence what their creative uh, decisions are. If they ask me what I think about a particular thing, I'm, I'm qualified to respond to that in a, in a meaningful way. But my job is to make it possible for them to make the work so that I can then distribute it to, to the appropriate people around the world. Not everything is for every, every stage. Right. right. That's, that's a great point. Um, I'd like to take a step back cause you did, you mentioned, um, some various titles, some different roles that are in our industry. And so for somebody who might be new to this, um, these might be some new terms. So can you talk about the differences between an agent, a manager and the creative producer? So an agent, uh, has a contractual agreement to represent a particular artist in a particular territory for a particular length of time. And they are told what the artist needs as far as the terms under which they would agree to work. They go out and seek that work and they bring financial offers to either directly to the artist or to the manager or to whoever's assigned to take that information. That's it's they, the agent often does not have a direct relationship with the artist. A manager in our business you know, because it's different in the world of pop, but in, in the sort of fine arts end of things, a manager is often serving as the agent, but is personally involved in developing the career of the artist. And, and by that, I mean, you know, you're always looking for the engagement that leads to the next engagement. You're trying to find those stepping stones. What what do we need to do to lay the foundation for this artist to go from where they are today to the next step? Just as you, you, know, you would if you were running a building, you know, you're developing a program and you get it to a place 
and then you're thinking, okay, now what's next? You know, so that's it's the same sort of same sort of logistical and yet intangible decision that you're trying to do. Everybody wants success, but you have to decide how are you going to define that. Is it financial? Is it artistic? You know, most as you know, most people on our side say it's not financial. It just doesn't happen. You know, it's rare that somebody really makes it big in our part of the business. But despite that, what a lot of people that aren't in the industry or maybe just starting out don't realize is there's still a good living in it. And oh, you don't absolutely. have to be the most famous person. No. Yeah. And you can still carve out your, your niche. I think it's fantastic. I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. And at this point, I don't know what else I would do. You know, I, I wake up in the morning and think, okay, what's next? You know, what am I going to do? So I, you ask, how do I find artists? Mm-hmm. I've spent the, you know, 26 summers going to the Edinburgh Festival. I go for the full month of August and see work all the time. Not because I'm looking for something, but because I'm, I'm just curious. What are people thinking about? You know, and I have lots of friends in the industry that I've developed over the years who are also producers, creative producers. And by that, we mean people who, beyond being the manager for the artist, are looking for ways to position the artist for new ventures. And that's really, that's, that's a big part of what I do. I, I raise a lot of money to create new productions. I seek co-commissioners. I look for producing theaters, as an example, to partner with an artist. At this level, you can start to move a little bit into the more commercial uh, aspects of the business, where it's not just people with no money begging other people with no money to give them money, right? I mean, there are some, some things that we do that eventually can make a little bit of money. So how do, I mean... For somebody who's kind of new to that sort of relationship, what's a good way to segue into, you know, maybe stepping your toes into being a producing theater? Or like, how do you find those or build those relationships um, to sort of start that venture? Because so many, you know, venues are there. We're just going out and, and booking shows for for one night and, and that's it. But if we want to have a deeper relationship, how? I'm a very big advocate for people getting on a plane and going places and meeting people. You know, I have found that one of the most valuable parts of my year is going to Edinburgh, where most of the most of the major festival directors from around the world are there at some point during that month. As I do at these regional conferences, I spend more time socializing than I do sitting in meetings which are transactional in nature, because it's about the people that you know who you, you get to understand what is it that you're trying to accomplish at Pick a Place. You get to know the person who's trying to realize their vision for their community, and that's where you can come in and say, hey, I've got the right thing for this. Are you the one that always approaches the artist to join your, your roster, or do people ever reach out to you and say, I'd like you to represent me? Many people have reached out. Primarily, I just I go and seek out the artist. What I'm curious about is for somebody like you, who is obviously just a lover of the art form, wants to see a show, wants to, to, you know, just experience something like that. You mentioned the Fringe Festival, and obviously there are thousands of shows that are happening at the Fringe. So you get this giant booklet. How do you choose what to go to? Like, what are you looking for? I have a network of people. And that's, it's just, that's what it is. So the, for those who don't know, the Edinburgh Festival Fringe uh, is 
the largest fringe festival in the world. It's 75 years old. There are thousands of performances every day. Many of them are not curated in any way. If you want to be in the fringe, you can be in it. You just have to pay your money to be in the, in the program and find a venue to do it. But within that, I know other creative producers. I know the people who run the Traverse Theater, the Royal Lyceum Theater, the Edinburgh International Festival. I know these people personally, and I've, you know, I've known them for years. So I, you know, we'll have dinner. We'll have, we'll go out to the pub, and we'll say, "What are you seeing? What, what's good and what's not?" And you learn those people. The the most valuable thing is, you know, the people who are willing to tell you, "Don't see that." You know, keep that hour. You don't need to go there, because there's a lot of junk on that. And I didn't, I didn't finish answering your question earlier about how else I meet people. And so while I do go to the festivals, and not just Edinburgh, I've, I go to, I've often go to the festivals in Australia as well and New Zealand. I'm a member of an organization called ISPA, the International Society for the Performing Arts, which of all of these convenings I find to be the most beneficial. It's manageable in size. It tends to be really driven by art as opposed to commerce. Not to the exclusion of commerce. People are smart business people. But it is inherently not a transactional gathering. We meet twice a year. And some of my most important relationships around the globe stem from that membership organization. I feel like I, in that organization, I could look in the directory and if I was having a problem in a part of the world that I didn't know, I could find people that I know who could help me figure that out. I don't know how you feel about this, but I know there, I've seen, I know firsthand that there's several agents, there's artists and even other managers that view you as a mentor, whether you, whether you want to be in that role or not. And I put myself in that, you know, you've, you've made me think about things and challenged my way of thinking in a good way to, to kind of get me out of a rut and, and go towards what I really want to do. And um, I've been pursuing that now ever since I met you. And, you know, I'm grateful for that. But I'm just curious how you feel about being put in that role. It's the greatest honor to be able to pay, to pay it forward a bit, um, I think is really important. So giving people opportunities to reconsider, to just ask the question rather than tell them what to do, but to use the Socratic method. Right? I mean, that's really the essence of it. First, you're looking, you know, you have people who are as interested in the world as you are. And they're just at a different point in their career. And so my job at this, you know, at my ripe old age, I feel is to, you know, give back. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, I would echo what Brian said. And I also think one of the things that I really like about our relationship is that you have challenged the way that I've thought about the industry and about what I'm doing. Um, and what I'm doing is a little bit different than what some of my colleagues are doing. And it's, it's been very valuable. So I, I thank you for that. But I want to come back to a couple things. Uh, so taking a, a step back in time. So if I could borrow Brian's time machine mm -hmm, for sure. a moment and let you use it to take a step back in time to go to, I think the point where you are starting your agency. You're, you've just decided, like, well, you're doing it. What would you tell yourself? What's that advice that you would give yourself at that moment in time that you know now that you didn't know then? Well, I, I made some really big, big mistakes in the beginning. I tried to replicate what I was doing at Cami when I started out. 
So I had uh, had a roster of artists that didn't work for my business because I didn't have the resources that Cami had. So I didn't have a sales team. You know, I was the sales team. I was the guy who had to go out and figure out, you know, how to set up the computer and stuff. And, and you know, I know this that sounds hokey right now, but back then it was a, it was a big deal. You know, with dial-up internet when it worked. The the biggest mistake I made was and, and I learned from it, and I'm, I'm grateful I did it, but I invested an enormous amount of personal capital in it and lost, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in the first five years of my business because I was convinced that the projects that I was backing with that money were going to be fantastic. And they were. They just didn't make any money. <laughs> <laughs> so I have, uh, it took me a while to dig out of that hole, but I did. And, uh, you know, now I'm, I'm, I'm more judicious uh, with, you know, how I spend my own personal funds. I put in, I'll put in a lot of sweat equity, but I do try to find other supporters to help defray the costs. Is there any other advice? I mean, we're almost out of time uh, that you think young people today need to hear um, about approaching their positions as they're entering the field at w whatever it might be, whatever role. Yes, I would say when people tell you you can't do it, you have to be able to say, why? You know, if your job is to find great art and you're told you can't travel, how are you going to find great art? You know, you're not going to find it in a 15-minute showcase. You have heard this before, but I feel like if, if you're going to show me your best 15 minutes, I'm not interested at all, you know? Because if you can't put 15 good minutes on stage, you're really in the wrong business. I mean, I say go and see work, make it, make it a priority, make the travel a priority for the organization if, you're, if your job is programming, you know, and engage. Don't be afraid to talk to people you don't know. You know, people are interesting. You know, so often we go to these conferences and you see different colored badges, one for, one for the, you know, the people in, in the boots and one for the people who are avoiding eye contact, you know, with the people in the boots. And I'd say, that's ridiculous. You know, let's, if we're, we're all in this business because we love art, why not have a conversation about that? So I would say, be more open, be curious and, and uh, you know, don't be afraid. Michael. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being a mentor and a friend uh, to us all. And yeah, I appreciate you sitting down and chatting with us. Well, today. Thanks so much for having me. You know, I'm really proud of the work you guys are doing, all of you. And uh, and it's 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 exciting to to see it go from a brief conversation last February to what it is today. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Kevin, I really enjoyed the conversation with Michael. You know, he's had such a fascinating life from going from huge companies like Cami to starting his own company. But I think what I was inspired most about was the deep relationship that he was able to build with Mark Morris and how Mark was willing to go off and leave a giant company like Cami and have all his trust in Michael and to follow him, you know, to Double M booking. And I, I thought that was really just something really special that you don't have that kind of relationship every day. Well, and he had that foresight going into the agreement to put that key man clause in there. So it wasn't even like at 
you know, towards the end when that relationship true, is ending yeah. that he wanted to go. I mean, he had the foresight to put that in the initial artist agreement with Cammy, which says a lot about that relationship. Yeah, it really just talks about the testament to relationship building. Without that, I mean, be a very different agency for Michael now. Bouncing off of that, Michael's relationship with Mark and how long they've been working together is a really great example of how to build a relationship with an artist. So whether that's a presenter artist relationship where you return to that over and over again and maybe develop some new work together or build out residency models or whatever that is, or that agent artist relationship. I think it's a really striking example of how to build something long-term that's going to withstand time. Right. And over the ups and downs of <laughs> everything this industry has gone through, um, they're, they're still there. Like I had the pleasure of going to Detroit recently with Michael to see Mark Morris and yeah, that, it clearly is a, a special relationship that they have. The interview that you did with Sarah McCarthy, she talks about, you know, in figuring what artists are going to be on a roster, she refers to it like a marriage and a relationship. And, and that really carries through here where, I mean, he and Michael have worked together for 30 plus years now. And, and that kind of long lasting establishment um, really speaks to the importance, like you said, of the relationship and the relationship of the artist to the agent. And so literally in every aspect of this business, the relationships are so important. Well, and it's one thing for an agent to go out and sell a show to venues, especially at the level that they're working at. It's a whole nother thing to raise that capital for a work that doesn't yet exist, for people to believe in your belief, really, of that artist. I mean, that that's a special that's a special relationship. And and they've, like you said, they've done it for decades. And he's got such an unconventional way of looking at things, which I really appreciate, especially when he's talking about seeing work and going out and seeing the work rather than just going to see a 15 minute showcase someplace, but to actually travel and go see the work. Um, you know, that's something that I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to do that still, but I, I really love that idea. And there's a, there's a big difference between seeing work live with a public audience yes. and mm -hmm. their reactions mm -hmm. versus the reactions in a showcase of a room full of presenters who were all, I mean, we are all in it every day and our reactions are completely different than what our public crowd reactions are going to yeah. be. Mm -hmm. and, and seeing work and seeing how it truly affects people that aren't hardened and cold to the industry like so many of us <laughs> in the industry, um, as far as seeing live performance, it really opens you up to how is this going to serve the people that I serve mm -hmm. by seeing how it's serving others. Well, and Danielle, I think it, in our conversation with Sarah McCarthy, you talked about how important it is to see work and how it feeds your soul, but it's a challenge with work-life balance. And it's also going to be a challenge for us in general in the industry moving forward because budgets are so tight right now coming out of this moment. And so how do we find different ways of doing that? And something I'm doing with my colleagues in Michigan is making sure that they all know that there's something at my venue you want to see just let me know and I will get you comps. Like you might have to drive two or two and a half hours to come see it, but you are always welcome to come. And I think that generosity between presenters in particular is one way we can move forward in helping each other see work um, because I can't come to New York. I can't go to Chicago or wherever all the time, but I can 
rent a car or I can take a weekend with my family and go somewhere and and see a show. Um, and so and I you're think, within driving distance of almost the entire hand of Michigan. I, be, I am. It's two to two and a half hours anywhere in the lower peninsula, you guys. So if you want to come to Michigan, you can always get a comp ticket at my venue. Um, but I do think we have to get creative now about how do we see work and how do we continue to feed our souls? So last week's episode, some of us talked with Christine Cox. She mentioned Michael being her mentor and that he taught her to be luxurious with her time. And specifically what that turns into is being luxurious socially with the people that you're working with to build that relationship further and get to know them. And that speaks to Michael's success in bringing new work and people having faith in that new work is because he has been so luxurious with his time and building those relationships that they have every bit of faith in what he's going to bring to the table. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's building not just in his average networking people, colleagues, he's building deep, meaningful relationships. Yeah, and through that, like he's learning what works in different communities and what might be able to push them for and really just identifying like the thing that he talked about is that not everything is for every stage and, you know, understanding that, you know, this relationship is, you know, it's a great relationship. It may never lead to a fruition of something being on that stage, but it might in the future, like just by that act of getting to know. And you never know what else could come out of that or what other connections you can then make for your friends and colleagues. Right. It's like, I, it might not be right for me, but it might be right for someone else in my region or my state or I, Hey, oh, you're looking for something like that. I know Michael's got this thing. Let me connect you. So there's a lot of value in spending that time and building out and understanding what people have to offer. Um, and I appreciate that. And I think it's a great reminder that we all just need to take a breath too and spend some time, not only like in this relationship building, um, but spend time seeing work that inspires us and getting our cre own creative juices flowing. So for me, that is like a, a really means two things. So spending time with others and spending time in my own creative practice as well. You talked to a lot about being curious about what artists are doing. And I think you went back to that word curious a few times. And I feel like it is easy to to lose that that feeling as as you go on. But like remembering to keep that curiosity alive and seeing what artists are doing and what they're thinking about and where things are going. Um, yeah, you can't lose it. Well, thank you all. It's been a really great to have a conversation with Michael and also to sort of talk about the impact that he's had on our lives. The most present form is obviously this right here. Uh, so thank you, Michael. And thank you, Christine, for bringing us all together. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to There's No Business Life. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Van Hoek. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at nobusinesslife.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials. If you like this podcast, give us a like, a follow, a review, or our favorite, a five-star rating. Oh, wait, what was that site? <laughs> I got it. Don't worry. It is nobusinesslife.com. Do I sound out bus I miss every time I type it? Yep, sure do. Stay in touch, my friends. What's on your socks? Um, it says, fuck this shit. Because <laughs> <laughs> when you had your legs crossed, go the other way. Oh, that yeah. would have been perfect like, for yesterday. No, you, you can't, you can't see it. Uh, yeah. That was not expecting, that's not what I was expecting is the answer. <laughs>